Hey guys, real quick, Dr. Dale here. All right, so I want you guys to do me a favor. Before you start this episode, please hit that pause button and click subscribe or click follow or click like, whatever it is. We work really hard to bring you guys this good information to uplift the entire community, and we really appreciate you guys supporting our efforts and our work. Love you guys. Enjoy the episode. What is up, family? It's Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor Wisdom from Parents Who Did It, Pre-Med Mondays, Black Men in White Coats, and the Doctor Doc Children series. Grab your copies on Amazon.com or click down in the links below and I will mail you a copy. However, you got to cover your own shipping and handling. And of course, listen to the Black Men in White Coats podcast, a place where black clinicians have the platform to share our stories with listeners like you. Super excited about today's guest. But before I introduce him, I just want to touch on two real quick things. The first one. All right. COVID. I know you guys are hearing COVID, COVID, COVID. You're probably tired of hearing COVID. But the one thing I'm going to say about COVID right now for the time that we're in is, you know, like down here in Texas and across the country, places are starting to get ready to open back up. Right. So businesses, all these places are about to start opening back up. I'm not going to wax poetically or spend as much time today as I've spent in the past. But the one thing I will say is, guys, please, as we open back up, let's keep on doing what we know is right. Let's keep on washing the hands, you know, rock your mask, you know, physical distancing, do all those things that we know we should be doing. Don't just think because we're opening back up, hey, party time. Now, let's still be cautious, super cautious, and let's um, be wise about our decisions and enter this thing gradually and so we can keep, you know, keep control over all this, right? So that's the first thing I want to say, and I'm going to leave COVID alone for this week. You guys are probably tired of me talking about COVID, all right? But the second thing I want to do is give a shout out to a group of people who I feel has been kind of overlooked throughout all this, right? So healthcare professionals, everybody's giving us all the accolades. And, you know, I'm down here in Dallas. You drive by the Mav State and they've got this big sign saying thanks to the healthcare workers. And, you know, Mark Cuban, appreciate you for doing that. Thank you. You know, we're grateful to the Mavs organization for that. It makes me feel good every time I drive past that, right? But I want to take a moment and just say thank you to the teachers. Thank you to the teachers, you know. For any of you guys who are in my situation, and I know a lot of you guys are having to figure out this homeschool, you got little kids in school, right? But they can't go to daycare because you're actually in school and you got to figure out this homeschool thing. And I'll tell you, especially if you're a healthcare professional, you know, it's hard to get somebody to want to watch your kids in this COVID situation time if they know you're going in and out of hospitals and such. But anyways, if you're in this situation where you've got to try to figure out how to homeschool your kid and you're going to work and doing all this and, you know, both, both people in the household are working and such, it's hard, man. It is super hard. It's exhausting. And the more exhausting part is the homeschooling part, right? The clinical part, honestly, is much easier than the homeschooling part right now, like trying to figure out the kids' stuff, school, keep up with that stuff. And, you know, what it, What this has done is it has given me a completely new appreciation for teachers, what they go through, right? I've just got three in my house, and when each one of them are coming up to me with different questions about academics from time to time, I'm just thinking, man, what would it be like to be a teacher and you got whatever, 10 to 20 kids in your class all coming up to you with questions and so on. It just gave me a completely newfound appreciation. So kudos to the teachers, thin innovation, round of applause. My podcast isn't that high tech yet, but if I had one of those little buttons I push in to clap for you, I would clap for you guys right now. I appreciate you guys. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Hats off. Uh, much love, mad respect to the teachers out there, you know, keeping that flame of education burning for our children during these difficult and challenging times. All right, folks, real quick, 
premedmondays.com, premedmondays.com. If you're a pre-medical student, as always, I got to invite you to join premedmondays.com. What we've done is we've created a coaching program where every Monday night you get to hop on a video call with either me or a member of my coaching team, and we take you through my book. We teach you directly from Premed Mondays, and then we let you ask questions, and it's a group discussion, and we dig deep in and make sure that we're pulling the best out of you guys to set you on a path for success, not just to become a doctor, but to become a leader in the field, premedmondays.com. Dot com. We know um, there's a lot of things out there that are super expensive that the students we want to help might not be able to afford. So we make sure every single pre-med can afford this, right? Premedmondays.com. Second thing, diversemedicine.com. If you're in the healthcare field at any level, join diversemedicine.com. Be a mentor. Get a mentor. Uh, get recruited by medical schools. You know, join a community. So many things on diversemedicine.com. If you're not on there, you need to be on diversemedicine.com. All right, folks. Let me do what you guys are here for. I'm going to introduce my guy, Dr. Julius Wilder. Dr. Julius Wilder, man, such a cool cat, man. Let me tell you, so we did um, residency in the same place. I was an intern when he was a third-year resident, right? So I was coming in when he was on his way out, but we overlapped for that year. And then he stayed there for fellowship, so I still interacted with him throughout my entire three years at that institution. And, man, just a great guy, right? Highly, highly respected the whole time. Phenomenal guy. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything negative about him. There's never been like, oh, he's mean. There's never been he doesn't do his work. There was never anything negative about this guy. Just the kind of guy who just couldn't be touched and super brilliant. Everybody just loved him. Big smile. You know, phenomenal doctor. Um, now he's a transplant hepatologist. So excellent guy. Right. So this podcast, let me tell you. So obviously I listen to every podcast before I play him. Right. And let me tell you the first line that he drops. Right. The first few sentences. Boom, those got me from the get-go. Those got me from the get-go. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what they are because I want to see if it gets you from the get-go too. But when he drops this first few sentences, it's, it pulled me in and I was hooked. And I just had to hear what he was going to say. I had to hear his perspective. I'm just going to say he's direct. He doesn't sugarcoat things. And, and he's going to tell you how he felt. He's going to tell you like it is. right? And I really appreciate him for doing that. Phenomenal guy. Awesome guy. Ladies and gentlemen, my guy, Dr. Julius Wilder. Julius Wilder, and I am the Invisible Man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bones, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, however, simply because people refuse to see me. They refuse to see me as a child, even though I was smart. And they refuse to see me still today as a MD, PhD, in a long white coat walking through the hospital. Well, what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time and <clears throat> tell you about my journey 
and my experience as a black male who wanted to be in medicine. And then to provide a little bit of insight around how I have, at least to a certain extent, been successful as a black male in medicine. Um, and for me, it begins with that invisibility that I was just talking about. That That's an excerpt from a, a book I read in high school called The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. One of my favorite books um, and a book that when I read it, I felt really captured the essence of what I have experienced. Um, certainly what I'd experienced to that point in my uh, early years uh, in high school and in terms of academia, but in many ways still captures precisely what I experience even today. I grew up in and was born actually in Charleston, South Carolina and grew up there. And I love that city. Uh, some good uh, shrimp and grits. And I have a lot of family in Charleston, a lot of family on James Island. And I enjoyed spending time with them. I still do. Um, but one of the earliest, most painful memories I have as a child was the first time my intelligence and my character were questioned. And it was in the setting of you know, I was a good student, um, and in the setting of that, a teacher, um, um, I went up to this teacher and said, hey, the student next to me, we were taking a test, and I said, you know, the student next to me is cheating on me, and the teacher actually, um, even though I was saying the student was cheating on me, she accused me of cheating and punished me because she didn't believe that I could be doing that well on the test. And... You know, this is probably when I was five years old. Um, almost 40 years later, I still remember that vividly and how painful that memory was. I will never forget how I cried as I stood there being punished and how little I felt and how belittled and and why and how frustrated it was that she couldn't see me and how smart I was. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that that happened when I was in second grade. And then it happened again when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> um, but when it happened in seventh grade, a very different thing occurred. And, and this is why I share this story with you, because if we're going to begin to transcend that invisibility, as black males, if we are going to defeat these stereotypes and be seen for who we really are and be seen for what we can truly accomplish, we're going to need to speak up for ourselves and we will need the love and support of people. And I'll tell you, um, when I was in seventh grade, I was in a math course and I was doing as well as many of my, as, as, as many of my peers in that class. And this was the course you took that decided what trajectory you were on in terms of high school. And at the end of the class, end of the year, the teacher decided to put me on a very different trajectory, one that would not have had me as prepared for my PSAT and my SATs in high school. Now, my mother, who was a teacher, <clears throat> she understood the importance of this, and and she actually 
questioned the teacher about this because she'd seen my grades. And she also uh, was aware of how well some of my peers had done the class because I shared it with her because um, I asked them as well. And my mom went back and forth with this math teacher. She refused to move me up. And, and so my mother, a high school teacher, in fact, she taught at the high school I would eventually go to, had one of her peers who taught math at the high school tutor me. And I'll never forget, I showed up to that, that woman's house and I was in her house probably for 30 minutes before she said, stop, we're done tutoring. You clearly deserve to be um, in this class um, and, and you don't need to come back here ever again. Um, and I learned a, such a valuable lesson. Um, I was young um, and frustrated by the math teacher's decision to not put me in a more advanced class. And I learned early on that I needed to speak up for myself. And I'm so thankful for having a mother who understood the importance of academics and having a mother who was willing to speak up for me. Um, and I have done that for myself at various points in my both academic and professional careers since then. Um, in the setting of people not recognizing me for who I am and for what I'm capable of. <clears throat> and I would urge you to do the same, to not allow people to define what you are capable of, but that if you truly believe you're capable of it and you, when you objectively evaluate yourself and know you're capable of doing it, um, don't let anyone stop you. And what my mother did for me in seventh grade, I know not only put me on the right trajectory to be successful in high school and on my SATs, of course, but really changed how I view the way people um, judge me. Um, that I don't accept that judgment, that I don't allow them to define who I am, and, and you shouldn't either. Now, I went on to high school, um, and high school was wonderful. Um, it was a great experience for me. Um, and eventually went on to college. And I ended up going to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County for college. And, you know, there are a couple of decisions I made in my path that as I reflect back on were so important. Um, I think the first was doing that tutoring um, to prove I was good enough for that math class in seventh grade. And the other important decision point for my life trajectory, quite frankly, um, was attending the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And because at UMBC, um, I was accepted into the Meyerhoff Scholarship Program. Now, this is a program that was designed to help undergraduate, um, underrepresented minority students pursue careers um, to, obtain, to obtain advanced degrees, uh, primarily PhDs, um, but also MD PhDs. Uh, and it was my, you know, because remember, like many of you, um, I was often the only black male in my class. And this is like my entire life to this point. No black teachers at all. And often the only black male, a few black females, um, but certainly the only black male. And while I was surrounded by great people often in terms of students, there is a loneliness. There is a stress. There is a burden that comes with that. That lack of community, uh, the sense of having to carry the, the load for everyone. 
and the frustration um, of, again, the stereotypes um, and assumptions that can be made um, was something I had to deal with my entire academic life. But the Meyerhoff program was the first time I was in an environment where I was surrounded by students of color who were academically successful and also had similar aspirations in terms of um, pursuing advanced degrees. Um, at this point in time, I'd already decided that I wanted to do medicine. And that experience was so important for me. We studied together. We passed tests together. But maybe most importantly, we failed tests together. And we helped ourselves get through that together. And we learned and taught each other. Um, those people, um, and of course, this was a program of both men and women, um, are people that are important to me to this day. And in fact, many of my uh, my college roommates were in that program and were the best men in my wedding. And our uncles and aunts to my children to this day. Um, I'm so thankful for that program. It created that environment where I really had, for the first time, a sense of a culture of black academia and what it could be like and what that meant to me and was so motivating throughout all of college, even when things got hard. The other piece of the Meyerhoff program that was so important for me as I matriculated through college was the opportunities it provided to expose me to things that I would not have been exposed to otherwise. Again, I think the theme for me in my life has been transcending that invisibility. And the Meyerhoff program did so for me. Um, one of the important ways it did so was by placing me in different research opportunities across the country, including working with a Nobel laureate at University of Colorado at Boulder. These opportunities allowed me to be in places I would not have gone otherwise, to learn and work with people of very, very different backgrounds. And besides just the basic scientific knowledge that I gained, the experience of communicating with them, and seeing how they communicate and understanding how they approach problems and how they think differently um, was extremely valuable for me. And those were skills that are valuable to me even today uh, as an attending. And so, you know, as I reflect on my process of how I became a black man in medicine, you know, there were a number of important things um, and pieces to that. Um, I think the, the first would be what my mother did for me, uh, in seventh grade, um, to ensure that people recognize my skills. And then I think the other piece being what UMBC did for me through the Meyerhoff program in terms of the, um, experiences, uh, in terms of research opportunities and so forth, but certainly creating a black culture of academia. And how that was so supportive and helpful for me um, in terms of successfully getting through college. When it came to decide on medical school, uh, I decided to come down to Duke. Funny because being raised, I was born in Charleston, but I actually grew, ended up growing up in Maryland. Uh, we moved there when I was um, in third grade. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, Maryland, you're raised to hate Duke. Um, but I was surprised during my interview at Duke. Um, I saw that, number one. There was a very large black community of scholars at Duke, both medical students and faculty. And I was very, very interested in experiencing that. 
and particularly because of my experiences in college through the Meyerhoff program. And then I met Brenda Armstrong, who's the Dean of Admissions, an African-American female. And this woman, um, from my medical school interview, in fact, <laughs> um, she walked through 22 inches of snow to interview me. We had had this storm of the century here in Durham, North Carolina, the night before my interview. And she made it through all that just to interview me. And I remember thinking to myself when she interviewed me for medical school, if she was willing to do that for me and I wasn't even a medical student yet, what type of love and support and guidance would she be willing to provide me as a medical student at Duke? Um, and Duke was wonderful to me. Uh, my experiences in medicine as a student, I think, were very typical for many students of color, especially black males. I think that um, as a black male, everyone assumes that you're only there because you're black and you're that, you know, the um, the diversity, uh, you know, committee. You wanted to, uh, you know, hire some folks and so forth and and whatnot. And it, that's very frustrating. And that's not something that only your peers in terms of students think a lot of times. But oftentimes, um, even people responsible for um, assessing you and grading you think the same thing. Um, and, and there was certainly some of that uh, that I experienced in medical school. I think one of the toughest things, right, when we go back to this inv invisibility thing, which is why I focus on that, I think it captures the essence of what we experience a lot as black males. They assume um, that you don't belong there, that you didn't earn it. And so when they go to judge you, they judge you differently and often judge you lower. And and having to deal with some of that subjective stuff um, was frustrating, particularly uh, when I was a second year medical student on the wards. Uh, and I have to say that it took time for me to learn how to, again, reflect on the things I learned at that point. So what did I do? Um, number one, I spoke up for myself and in every way possible, pushed back on when I was inappropriately subjectively judged and provided objective information to correct whatever mistakes I felt were made in terms of my judgment or when people were judging me or scoring me or grading me. And then understanding the importance of community, <clears throat> I sought out people within the School of Medicine that the community of color, the medical students told me were individuals who were going to be receptive and engaging and supportive. And I took advantage of those relationships and engaging them. So they provided me insight, guidance, to help me navigate these things um, as a medical student. And those were really important to my success in medical school. Um, when I came to Duke, I came as an MD PhD student. I initially thought I was going to do a PhD in immunology and study HIV. However, in the end, um, when I was doing my rotations on the wards, I recognized that there were things that had a direct and significant and negative impact on the health of our patients. These things did this regardless of the quality of care we provided. And I wanted to understand what those things were. And so I ended up switching my PhD to actually medical sociology, and I studied social determinants of health and health disparities. And that was an important thing for me. Um, you know, my PhD was the hardest thing I have ever done. 
my PhD was way harder than medical school. A lot of medical school is memorizing phone books, but the creativity and self-guided work and self-motivation required to do a PhD um, hits so hard. Um, but it's also probably one of the most um, amazing, fulfilling things I've ever accomplished. Um, and I did that, of course, because I had great mentorship and guidance in terms of my committee and committee chairs. Um, but it was an important decision to pursue medical sociology. And, and when I talk later on about what I do right now, it's really relevant um, to how I um, practice medicine and what I do <clears throat> in terms of my work right now. But I went on and did the first, um, my, my MD PhD was actually the first of its kind in the history of Duke University. And I went on to graduate with honors um, and ended up doing my residency uh, in internal medicine at Duke um, and my fellowship. And I want to pause there for a second because I think my success in medical school <clears throat> really was closely linked to my willingness to um, um, embrace and to serve my community. Um, now, you can serve the community, in, in, in meaning I served as the president of Student National Medical Association. I was student body president for Duke School of Medicine, actually the first African-American Af male to do so. I worked with various groups within the Durham community, and I continued that work as a resident uh, where I was uh, assistant chief resident and president of the residency council and, and continued that work as a fellow. And what I can say is that those opportunities not only helped me understand more about my environment, um, they helped me understand how I could help my environment. And many of the opportunities that have become available to me in my life are a result of my being willing to serve my community. Now, for me, that service has been primarily within the community of color here in Durham and at Duke. Um, and for you, that might be something else. Um, but not only is it something that provides just fulfillment, knowing that you're giving back, um, but I will say that in service grows opportunity and leadership. And, and so I urge you, and this could be a medical student or whatever you're doing, quite frankly, in life, um, think about ways you can serve your community um, because you'll be surprised how that can result in tremendous opportunities for you that you may not have even considered. And so I went on to residency um, and again, I thought that I was the man. You know, I had I'd done well as an intern and as a resident. I was an assistant chief resident and um, a leader in, among the residents. And I thought I was going to be the chief resident. Um, and I was not selected for that. And that's something that I that still hurts a little bit when I reflect back on it. Not because I didn't get it. I think there were a number of people who could have made good chief residents. But honestly, I think some of the individuals chosen um, – had never really shown an interest in leadership or giving back or serving. Um, and I think those are important characteristics to a chief resident. And that was an important life lesson for me. Um, you know, um, you can do all the right things, um, but you still may not um, get what you want. And and I, I could have accepted that and been bitter, um, but I didn't get bitter. I am, I accepted it. Um, I spoke to my mentors and I spoke to my colleagues and, and I moved forward, um, again, through service, um, and, and giving back to my community is 
one of the ways I dealt with that, with that tremendous disappointment. And, and in the end, um, I don't think it's hurt me, um, in academia. And, and I think I've gained more, um, because of the things I did to serve my community, um, you know, uh, to help me get around that, that tremendous disappointment. But again, I'll be honest with you, as I reflect on it, I, I couldn't help at the time feeling as if this is another opportunity, another example where, you know, I'm not being seen for who I am and what I can do. And, 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 and that's going to happen in life. And uh, what I'll say is that it's important again, that you get through that, that you don't allow that to define or impede your continued progress, um, and whatever your life goals may be. And so today, uh, I am a black man in medicine. I am an assistant professor in the Division of Gastroenterology here at Duke University School of Medicine. I round uh, in gastroenterology. I also um, have an advanced transplant pathology um, and advanced hepatology fellowship that I did after my GI fellowship. Um, and so um, I do a lot of liver disease in terms of management of that as well. Um, but I also split my time. I do clinical trial work, um, clinical trials primarily uh, in liver disease. And then I have funding uh, to study health disparities, um, particularly right now looking at health disparities as it relates to access to liver transplantation. Um, as a black man in medicine, um, you should not allow anyone to define what that looks like for you. Uh, but for me, it was important that that reflects my idea of transcending that invisibility um, and embracing that um, that environment of of academia to give back, which is why the the PhD in medical sociology is important and, and why my research right now that focuses on health disparities is so important to me. As black men in medicine, we are in many ways invisible. And even when they acknowledge our MD or they acknowledge our intelligence, we can still not be seen for who we are and what we can contribute. And what I would say is that you continue to speak up whenever given the opportunity to show people who you are and what you can do. Do not allow anyone to define who you are or what you are as a black man. Embrace academia um, and try to find and build a community of black academia um, and serve um, whenever you can, um, because it's through that service that not only you reap tremendous benefit, but you're able to give back and help um, create that pipeline that we need um, of other black males uh, to to come through and, and be as successful um, as, as you may have been. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my story with you as a black man in medicine. I think that we will need to transcend that invisibility and build that community of black academia and, and support our black men in medicine um, to um, provide resources and give back to create that pipeline as we move forward. Thank you so much. God bless. Dr. Julius Wilder, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Man, I told you it was going to get you off the get-go. I told you it was going to get you right off the get-go. The invisible man, he was invisible. 
right? And when he said that, it just sucked me in because I know exactly what he's talking about. I felt that way myself before, so I knew exactly what he was talking about, right? The Invisible Man, and, you know, I related to a lot of things he said in that podcast, you know, being blamed for something that you didn't do and all sorts of stuff, and and that really got me. But the one thing that I want to kind of um, comment on before I let you guys go today is I like how he talked about that whatever successes he's had so far are in large part due to serving his community. Whatever successes he's had so far are in large part due to serving his community. And I just thought that was important, right? Um, because there is success in that. There is success in serving your community, right? You can have great success in serving your community. And I'm highlighting that specifically because when you go read people's medical school personal statements, right? When you read the residency statements, personal statements, everybody's saying, not everybody, but you know what I mean. A lot of people are saying, yeah, I want to go. I want to work in underserved areas. I want to work in these rural communities. I care about diversity. And everybody says that because they know that's what you're supposed to say. But the question is, who really does it, right? These people, a lot of these people, they'll get into, they'll get into med school, residency, and a lot of times they forget about that. I don't know if they forget or just don't want to just don't want to go there, right? The reasons that brought them in there were reasons to serve these communities. And unfortunately, all these communities end up not being served in those capacities. But Dr. Wilder is a phenomenal example of how you can serve your community and be successful. All right. So I really appreciate him pointing that out because that's something that I haven't really quite heard in this podcast yet. So I'm very grateful that he took the time to highlight that. And, you know, certainly that certainly we try to do that here with black men and white coats. And I know a lot of people that roll with us try to do that as well. So I appreciate all of you guys. Dr. Julius Wilder, my guy, thank you so very much for taking the time to do this podcast. Thank you for being the upper level to me when I was coming through the reins of my training. You know, I looked up to you back in the day and I appreciate, um, you know, kind of the role model you were for the younger black men who were coming through the program. So thank you for for setting the level, setting the bar high for us to to strive after so we could try to be like Dr. Julius Wilder. Thank you so very much. Everybody remember pre-meds, check out premedmondays.com, all the healthcare professionals and students, diversemedicine.com. Take a second, click that subscribe button below, subscribe on Google Podcasts, subscribe on iTunes. The more people to listen and share this, the better rankings we get or whatever you're doing to, to get us you know, more visibility. And we want more and more and more people to listen to these podcasts so they can hear our stories so we can actually impact change. Appreciate you guys. Stay safe. Praying for all of you. Love you. Have a good one. Set you a goal.